We are back in Acts after taking four weeks to get ready for Easter. And we're in the 14th chapter. You can follow along in your Bible, in your study guide, or up on the screen. We're reading verses 1 through 23. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. For the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the, the people from offering sacrifices for them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he tore up, I'm sorry, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Thank you, Jody. Expected and unexpected. That is the story of Acts 14. Um, sorry, I made this a little bit higher than I expected. I don't want to go like old school preacher, but I do have bad enough eyes that it's got to be up a little bit. So, there we go. Acts 14 is a chapter of patterns repeated and broken, of familiar things and brand new things. And that's what we're going to jump into today. Uh, first of all, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Moss, and I pretend to work here at Sunnybrook. Uh, 
I'm actually a part of a campus ministry here in town called The Table that partners alongside of Sunnybrook. And so they let myself and Rachel Vincent, also on staff, uh, hang out with them. And sometimes we even get to do things like preach here. So uh, glad to get to do that this morning. But first, a, a brief refresher, because as Jody said, we've been in an Easter series, walking through the last words of Jesus for the last four weeks. So I want to make sure we're all caught up to speed on Acts. Acts is the story of Jesus' continued work through his church after he ascends to heaven. That he continues to bring his kingdom and his gospel to the world through them as they go out and proclaim the truth about who Jesus is and about what he's done. And, and we're actually given in the first chapter of Acts this little outline for the rest of the book. It comes in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and we referenced it a long time ago when we started. But there Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see that that exact thing happens. That in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and empowers them for the task that they've been given. And then chapters 2 through 7, we see them being witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, proclaiming who he is there. And then when persecution comes and they begin to scatter chapters 8 through 12, that gospel goes out into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 13 through the rest of the book, we see the story of that gospel going out to the end of the earth. And that's about where we left off. We had just stepped into this third section. Uh, chapter 13, where the Holy Spirit says to the church at Antioch, set aside Paul and Barnabas for me and for my work. And so they send Paul and Barnabas off on their first missionary journey. we got a map there that kind of shows over on the right side you see Antioch in Syria. That's where they start. And they move out from there down into Cyprus. Salamis is Barnabas' hometown. And they make their way into Salamis and cross the island preaching. And then they come up into Asia Minor, this region that becomes kind of Galatia. And they go up into a different Antioch, which we call Pisidian Antioch. And they begin to proclaim the news there. And, and what we see as they do that in Antioch, we, uh, like I said, at the end of chapter 13 where we were, is some of the same patterns that we've seen and patterns that we will continue to see through the book of Acts. They go into Antioch, they enter first into the Jewish synagogue, and they begin to preach the gospel, and then the gospel starts to spread as they make converts until eventually opposition arises from the Jewish people and they are driven out of town. And then repeat, and then repeat. And those kinds of things happen over and over again. And in some ways, chapter 14 will play out just like 13. And in some ways, actually, it will be much different. Yes, they will enter synagogues and they will preach and they will make converts and they will experience opposition and then it will happen again. But 14 will also take some unexpected turns. Some unexpected actions and responses on behalf of both the apostles and of their listeners. And some of this is new and unexpected because it's just the first time we see it in the book of Acts. And some of it is new and unexpected because it is uh, just quite frankly surprising human behavior. Things that you don't anticipate human beings doing. Like take for example, for example the first few verses of this chapter. 
says in verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now you need to know, they were in Antioch and then they traveled about 90 miles down to Iconium, southeast down to Iconium, uh, a, a large city center like Antioch. And uh, it's now modern day Konya in Turkey. But it says, they enter into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So here we see the same pattern as chapter 13. Go in, preach the gospel, and then they begin to stir up uh, opposition against them. The Jews do. But then you come to verse 3. And verse 3 doesn't quite seem to make sense in light of verse 2. If you read 2 again, that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers, and so... They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace. There are some uh, scholars who actually believe, as they study through Acts, that verse 3 is out of place. That it's not supposed to be there. Somewhere along the lines that maybe uh, someone was copying down and they accidentally reversed the order somewhere because it doesn't make sense where it is. At least they don't think so. Verse 3, when you see opposition arises and the minds of the people are poisoned against them, you're supposed to read in the next sentence, and so they left and moved on to another town. That's not what Luke says. Opposition arises, the heat gets turned up, and so they stayed longer. And so they spoke more boldly. It's not what you would expect to see take place, but then in verse 4 we see, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles because the opposition begins to grow so strong. And yet at the exact same time, the speaking is so bold and, and they're backing it up with miracles as Jesus does his work in that people. It begins to divide the people of the city, which shouldn't surprise us too much. Ajith Fernando is a speaker and writer who, who works for a ministry called Youth for Christ. He works in Southeast Asia. And Fernando tells the story of uh, the time he got yelled at by Buddhist monks in a Buddhist temple, which is a little bit kind of a, a different concept. Usually when you picture Buddhist monks, you don't see them flipping out on people. But Ajith remembers well, he says, the time when he was in this temple and these Buddhist monks were yelling at him along with a number of the lay people from the community. They're yelling at them because Ajith and some of his fellow workers had come to this community, this Buddhist town that had been Buddhist for many, many years, and they had begun to preach the gospel in that village. And the accusation that these monks were making against Ajith and his friends is that we have lived in peace in this village for centuries. And now you come with your friends and you begin talking about Jesus and their exact words were, you have ruined the peace of this village. Ajith said that was hard to hear. It's always got to be at least a little bit difficult when Buddhist monks are yelling at you. But it was... Particularly hard, Fernando says, because he knew it was true. 
Because he knew that, that what they were saying was right because Jesus said that this was what was going to happen. Do not think that I came to bring peace, but to bring a sword. That when the gospel is proclaimed, it challenges deeply held beliefs and deeply held traditions. It challenges our strongest allegiances and demands a new kind of allegiance to Jesus. And that is going to cause division. That is going to cause trouble. And it did for Paul and Barnabas and for the people as they began to preach in Iconium. Eventually, a plan is hatched by those opposed to them to actually bring them forward and to kill them. And when Paul and Barnabas kind of catch wind of this, they determine at that moment that actually more harm is being done by staying than by leaving. And so it says that they flee. They travel about 20 miles southwest, or south, yeah, southwest down to Lystra. And as they get down to uh, Lystra, uh, which is more of a kind of rural area. They've been in big cities, but they, they, they're now in this kind of rural area, and they begin to do the same kinds of things. They begin to preach there, and they begin to gather people around them. Go down to verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Now, this is not surprising if you've read the book of Acts. We've seen this multiple times. God, Jesus, doing healing through his people, through his apostles, doing these amazing acts. In fact, this looks a whole lot like Acts 3 where Peter and John are walking through the temple courts and they see a man who's been born lame and who's never walked and they say, get up. He gets up and he begins to walk. It looks a lot like that. What is surprising to this one is the response because the response to this healing is unlike anything we've seen in the rest of the book of Acts. It says in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So this behavior may seem a bit bizarre to you. They see healing and automatically want to begin offering sacrifices. But a little bit of understanding of the history helps you kind of grasp what's going on here. The Roman poet Ovid, who, who writes around this time, he lived at the turn of the first century, and he writes about this legend that actually takes place in this region right here of, of Asia Minor. There's this story that one time two gods, I believe it was Zeus and Hermes, come down and they begin to visit the villages of this region. Looking, now they're disguised as strangers. They just look like everyday human beings, but they go and they're looking for a place to stay. And so they go to house to house asking to stay in this house. They go to a thousand different houses, Ovid says, and every one of them turns them down. And then finally they come upon this beat up old shack that this poor old couple, Philemon and Baucus are their names, live in this shack and, and they ask if they can stay there and Philemon and Baucus um, bring them in and show them this amazing hospitality with what little they have. They give them a place to rest and a place to hang out and they give them food and all these things. But the story ends with the two gods revealing themselves to this couple and then bringing them up on a hill and giving them really great blessings and then destroying every other town in the village because they had not shown hospitality. 
So now, here we are in Lystra, and these two strangers come walking into town, and they start doing some very godlike things, and then somebody goes, wait a second, I think I remember a story like this, and they decide, we're not screwing this one up again. And so they call out, the gods have come to visit us. And somebody takes off and they tell the priest of Zeus's temple, Zeus being the most widely recognized, uh, widely worshipped god in the region of Galatia here at this time. Zeus and Hermes, Hermes was supposed to be kind of the interpreter or the messenger of the gods. So because Paul is speaking, they think that must be him. They've come to visit us. And so they make this big parade, they bring out all these things. And, and Paul and Barnabas don't know what's happening at first. Probably because the people are speaking in their regional dialect at this time. And they don't fully understand until they bring the ox out and they're ready to slaughter and worship before them. And at that moment, Paul and Barnabas jump out and they begin to try to stop them. They begin to tear their clothes, which is a Jewish practice that would take place whenever someone hears blasphemy. And they try to stop them until they no, 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 friends, you've, you've got it all wrong. This is not why we're here. And they go on to preach the very first sermon ever recorded in Acts that is preached to complete pagans. That is preached to people with no Jewish background whatsoever. Every other sermon we've seen in the book of Acts is preached to Jews or to Gentiles who at least believe the Old Testament. And so whenever it's preached, they're able to use Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament figures. Paul doesn't have that luxury here. And so he has to go back to the beginning, to creation. It says there's, there's only one true God. We've come to proclaim him to you. He's the one who made everything you see. He's the one who blesses you with rain for your crops. And he gives you all of these things. And he tries to, to preach to them and proclaim to them. It says in verse 18, though, that even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But then... Things turn on a dime with another unexpected turn. But Jews, come, uh, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, how about that for a 180? If there's one thing you could never accuse the people of Lystra of being, it would be apathetic. Or nonchalant. You know those listeners, they're just not passionate enough. Oh, no, no, no. If they like you, they will literally worship the ground you walk on. And if they don't, they'll kill you. How it goes in Lystra. That's how it goes for Paul and Barnabas. Now, it looks like the turn happens really fast. It's just the span of two verses. More than likely, this happens over the course of several months that Paul and Barnabas are here for a long time. And it happens, not because the Lystrians just changed their minds. Why does it happen? Because Jewish opponents, all the way from Antioch and Iconium, travel down. Now, if they're coming from Antioch, they've traveled 110 miles to Lystra. They're not just content to get Paul and Barnabas out of their own town. They want to put an end to this message wherever it may be, wherever it may go. And so they make the 100-mile journey down to Lystra to stir up trouble and get Paul thrown out. And the people gather together, and this mob violence takes over, and they grab Paul, and they begin to beat him, and then they begin to stone him until he is supposedly dead. They draw him out. And actually, people don't know, like, like 
scholars of the book of Acts don't know exactly what happens here, whether this is an actual uh, miracle or not. But we see in verse 20, it says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So we, we don't know whether or not Paul actually is killed and God brings him back to life or if he's just knocked unconscious and they think he's dead. Either way, this is pretty crazy because what happens is he gets up walks back into town, and then heads on the next day to the next town and do it all over again. Listen, nobody's going to blame Paul and Barnabas if they go back to Antioch at this point. If they decide, listen, we've gone to three different cities in this region, and in every one of them, they've chased us out and tried to kill us. In Lystra, it nearly happened. Nobody's going to fault them for going back and recovering from their wounds a little bit, taking a break before finding new territory where the soil isn't so hard to till, but that's not what they do. They go on to Derby and they start all over again, and then comes verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now to me, of all the surprising twists and turns in this chapter, this is the biggest for me. If you look actually at Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey, you'll see that they're in the process of making a circle. That they traveled uh, west from Antioch, out across Cyprus, and then they go up north into Asia Minor, and now they're traveling back east towards Antioch. And if they continue on that path, they'll actually pass directly through Saul or Paul's hometown, Tarsus. So they're on their way to Paul's hometown and right back towards Antioch. But instead of doing that, once they get to Derby, they turn around and they backtrack. They go through all of the towns that persecuted them. Actually, as a matter of fact, they go through only the towns that persecuted them. They pass by Cyprus on their way back where everything went well for them. No, they directly enter specifically the towns where they got beat up, the towns where they got thrown out, and that seems crazy to me. Why? Why would they go back to these towns? Well, the reasoning, actually, there's two ways to answer that question. Both of them come in verses 22 and 23. It says that they went back, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. But why did they go back? Well, the reason is this, because they want to go back and strengthen these young embattled churches. They want to encourage them. They want to appoint elders for them. They want to help them to make sure that they will continue to remain faithful. That's the reasoning. There's another kind of why to ask here. Why would Paul and Barnabas put themselves through that? Why would they be the kind of people who go back through? Well, that's also answered in these verses. It's answered in the specific words recorded in verse 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The reason they go back into this place in spite of the persecution is because that is part of what it means to be Christian for them. To face difficulty, to face persecution is not 
crazy for them. They, they expect it. That's just part of what it is to be a Christian. So they can run right back into that knowing that it's coming because they expect it to come. Now, we're going to settle in on this verse here, verse 22, for just a little bit because these are some pretty strange words. And if you want to talk about unexpected, Luke says that these are the words that they use to encourage the church. Some of the oddest encouragement you'll ever get. Hey, uh, guys, we came here. We just want to give an encouraging word to you before we pass on to the next town. Here you go. It's going to be really hard. Good luck. See you later. Oh, thanks for that. I feel so encouraged. I feel so much better now. And then they move on to the next one and say the same things. Those are some odd. You know, Barnabas' name literally means son of encouragement. There's got to be like somebody in Lystra going, I don't think this dude is named properly um, because that's not, that's not the best encouragement I've experienced in my life, right? But here's what's kind of fascinating. They don't just say it's going to be hard. They say it has to be hard. It must be hard. Actually, the word must there is day in the Greek. It means necessary. It is necessary for it to be hard for us to enter the kingdom of God. Necessary for us to go through tribulations. Suffering and hardship and difficulty, they say, are a condition for entrance into God's kingdom. Does that seem a bit overstated to you? Be a bit dramatic? Maybe, maybe it's just these people that they say these words to. I mean, after all, these, if, if Acts 14 has shown us anything, it's that this area is going to be a difficult place to be a Christian. It's going to be hard for people to be followers of Jesus there. So it would make sense that Paul and Barnabas would tell them, hey, it's going to have to be hard for you. Just know it's a necessary part of being a Christian. Maybe, maybe it's just the people of Asia Minor that need to hear this word. Truth is, actually... This is not the only people that Paul ever says this to. He says the same thing to the church at Rome about 20 years later. He'll say in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And to the church in Thessalonica, who is going through an amount of persecution, he says this to them, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He'll later say to Timothy in his last letter ever written, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in case you're wondering, it's not just Paul. Other writers in the New Testament say very similar things. Peter says to his readers, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, listen, don't be shocked by this. When you go through fiery trials, when you suffer on the name of Jesus, don't don't act surprised by that. That's normal. You ought to expect that. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
The writer of Hebrews, when he writes to his listeners who are also going through persecution, says you ought to understand that this is part of God's discipline in your life. He says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Over and over and over again, we see this idea come up in the New Testament. It is the consistent witness of the New Testament writers that Christians will suffer. And I'm not talking about like the natural difficulty that comes up in our lives uh, for everyone. The, the loss of a loved one or, or, or cancer or, or a car accident that might tragically take someone we love. That's, that's not what the Bible's talking about. It is addressing the specific hardship that comes with following Jesus. The kind of hardship that you could avoid if you chose not to follow Jesus. That's what it's saying. That's the kind of suffering that comes to all of us. So why does it say this so often? Why does it stress this idea that we ought to suffer in following Jesus? That's actually a good question to ask, and it's important that we get this one right. Because many Christians throughout history have gotten the answer to this wrong. In the early church, in the first several centuries, uh, Christians read passages like Acts 14, or like Romans 8, or like uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, and they decided as reading that, that suffering ought to be their aim in life, that they ought to move towards those things intentionally. And so there are stories in the second and third century of Christians, when Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire, of Christians walking into like the courtroom of Roman governors and saying, hey, just so everybody knows, I'm a Christian, and then requesting to be executed, seeking martyrdom. There are actually stories of like mass groups of Christians going before governors and asking them to martyr them, asking them to be executed because they wanted this, because they read these words and decided, I'm supposed to suffer. And then after the third century when Christianity becomes legalized and it's okay to be, uh, there are other Christians who had to find new ways to suffer because I can't be martyred anymore, so there's got to be other ways for me to do this. And so there are, there are some who engaged in acts of extreme asceticism, starvation and sleep deprivation and exposing themselves to the elements. There was a group called the Stylites who would, who would actually like live for years up on top of these giant poles, living their entire lives without ever coming around, coming down, trying to find the hardest kind of life that they could find because after all, this says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. And so suffering was seen as the way that I can ensure my way into heaven. The Bible never says the aim for suffering. Biblically, suffering is never the point. Biblically, faithfulness is the point. Obedience is the point. The reason the New Testament says that suffering is necessary is because the writers assume that as a Christian, you will seek to be obedient to Jesus, and Jesus himself said that obedience to him will result in hardship. Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. John 15, if the world hates me, it will hate you too. Hardship is the natural result of following Jesus. Acts 14 is actually an excellent, excellent example of this. Because when you read Acts 14, you can see that Paul and Barnabas are not just trying to get themselves beat up. 
right? There's sometimes they're in a city and the opposition grows and they decide to stay. And then there's sometimes when the opposition grows and they decide actually it's wiser for us to leave. And then a little bit later, you'll see them go right back to the same town where opposition rose up and where they ran out of. See, they're not asking themselves, where can we go to get beat up the most? Where can we go to suffer the most? They're also not asking themselves, where can we go to avoid suffering? Now, those questions are irrelevant. The only question they're asking is, what has Jesus called us to? So let's be clear, the Bible does not say that you and I as Christians should pursue suffering. But let's also be clear, it does seem to say that if you're a Christian, you will suffer for Jesus. It should happen in your life. That's a tough truth. And that's that's a truth that as I've been studying through this has had these three questions spinning around in my mind all week. I want to share them with you and and hopefully try to answer a little bit as I've been processing them. Question, the first question is this, is it even possible to suffer for Christ today? Right, like I, I get it how Paul and Barnabas are going to suffer. They're in a place with a lot of resistance. They're in a time when Christianity is not a legally recognized religion yet, of course. Man, they go around traveling, stirring up trouble. They're going to get thrown in prison. They're going to get beaten. They're going to get chased out of town. There are places all over the world today where being a Christian or proclaiming Christ will have the same thing happen to you. But those places are not in America. I live in a modern Western democracy with freedom of religion. I I can't get thrown into prison for my faith unless I just go do something really stupid and illegal. So then should I even expect to suffer like this? Should I feel bad about that? I want to acknowledge that. I want to be careful. I don't want to heap on us a burden of guilt that we're not supposed to be bearing for this. Paul himself says in Philippians 4, he describes a lot of these things, and he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, listen, I know what it is to go through hardship and difficulty, but I also know what it is to be comfortable. I know what it is to have a lot, and I'm content in both. Paul's not itching to be persecuted, and he doesn't feel guilty when things are going well. I don't think he believes that we have to feel guilty for those things either, but he is content in that situation, and he is content in his suffering. I I also believe, though, um, that uh, persecution is not the only kind of hardship we might experience for Jesus. Just because we can't be thrown in prison doesn't mean it can't still happen for us. That we can't still go through difficulty. Uh, Paul will say at another point in 2 Corinthians 5, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, he's listing out all the hardships that he's faced for Jesus. And in those hardships, we see several different things. We do see kind of your standard persecution. He talks about being beaten and thrown in prison and being stoned that one time in Lystra and all of those things. But he also talks about things like shipwrecks that he's been in. Nobody did that to him. He talks about being in danger on the roads because there might be robbers here and there. That doesn't have anything to do with because he's sharing the gospel, they're robbing him. He's, on, he's in danger because he's going to share the gospel, yes, and there are natural risks to travel back in the first century. And he chalks that up as part of his hardship. 
He talks about how he's gone without food and he's gone without sleep because he's been laboring so hard for the gospel. He even talks about the emotional turmoil that he feels in his heart daily because of all the churches that he cares about, wondering whether or not they're going to pull through, wondering whether or not they're going to stay faithful. And he, I think Paul, if you read through Paul, he might chalk that up as some of his greatest suffering the deep concern he has for whether or not his churches will be able to stay true to those things. So sacrifice can be, or uh, hardship can come to us in many different forms. When we are faithful, there will be hardship. It might strain relationships with loved ones. It might affect my ability to advance in my job as I try to cling to integrity. I might lose social status. I might have to sacrifice safety or financial security or comfort or leisure. And this, if I'm honest, is the bigger, biggest reason why I often do not suffer for following Jesus. It's not because I live in a place with freedom of religion. That's part of it. But a lot of it is because much of my life is built around avoiding suffering at all costs. That I live in a culture that tells me in a thousand different ways that my life ought to be easy and convenient and leisurely and hey, if it's not, we've got a product that can fix it. So I've done a very good job of buying into that. The truth is I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to serve when I'm tired. I don't want to make things awkward with my neighbor or friends by telling them about Jesus. I don't want to go without my wants, which leads me to a second question. Is it possible for us to not suffer for Christ today? Like, is there such a thing as a Christianity that does not have to deal with hard things? that does not have to go through sacrifice and hardship? Is there any way to live the Christian life without suffering? And the answer to that is simple, yeah. Oh, absolutely there is. Here's how you do it. You love your neighbor, but not enough to tell them about Jesus if it's gonna make things awkward. You be generous with your money, but not in a way that might stretch you financially. You go to church, but you don't invest in your brothers and sisters to the point that their own burdens and hardships become your own. Don't get close enough to anybody that they might drain you. You serve, yes, but only if it's not too inconvenient for you or for your own family life. When a brother or sister is in sin, don't care enough to lovingly confront them. Yes, it is possible to never experience hardship in this life, but only through disobedience. should know that I'm preaching to myself right now because I do all of those things that I just mentioned. Do all of those things all the time. That leads me to this last question. How is it possible for us to suffer for Christ today? I don't mean like in what ways. I already talked about that. I mean, how can a person like me whose every natural inclination bends towards self-preservation and the path of least resistance, how can I obey what the Bible tells me to not just endure suffering but to rejoice it? That's a rejoice in it because that's not natural. That's not me. I don't want to do that. But how? How do I become the kind of person who will? still working on this, still figuring that out. And I, I really do believe that much of this is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in God's people when we're able to endure and rejoice in suffering. 
But it does seem like there are a few things that the Bible tells us to do. The first is that we should expect it. What we see in Acts 14, expect this. Don't be surprised when things are hard for you in following Jesus. Don't get angry when things get difficult or when you suffer a little bit. No, that's part of following Jesus. That's what we signed up for. That's why Luke can say that Paul and Barnabas are encouraging the people when they say to expect suffering. Because by encourage, he means they are instilling courage in them. They're preparing them for what is to come. Hey, this is what you signed up for, but you can do it. Not only should we expect it, we should also look through our suffering. Look beyond our suffering. Ajith Fernando, who I've mentioned earlier, he points out that in the New Testament, suffering is hardly ever mentioned without also mentioning the blessings that come through suffering. But when we read through the New Testament, we see That suffering is something that is expected, but also in it, God does something unique and powerful in us that that does not seem to happen in other points. He matures us in ways that are hard to explain. He reveals his power and his presence in our lives in brand new ways. He refines us and makes us look more like Jesus. That's why it's not crazy for the apostles to say we can rejoice in our suffering because the blessings that come on the other side of that, the things that Jesus does in our hardship as we seek to obey him are worth it. This is a quote from Ajith Fernando. He says, those who miss the hardships of the cross will also miss the prizes of the kingdom. And this is a man who who is able to speak to things like this. Because I mentioned to you earlier that he works for Youth for Christ in Southeast Asia, the, the specific country that Fernando lives in and has been living in all his life is Sri Lanka. Many of you are aware of the bombs that took place in the different churches in Sri Lanka last week and the many Christians who died in those. But if you're like me, you probably didn't know that this is not new for Sri Lankan Christians. That this is... This has been a part of their existence in that country for a very long time. Suffer for following Jesus. Fernando himself has experienced this. He has had staff workers brutally assaulted and beaten to death. He and his own family have been threatened multiple times. Friends of his have been murdered in their own homes. His son was injured by a bomb blast that went off near their home. Co-workers have been wrongfully imprisoned for months and months at a time, and he daily lives without many of the comforts and luxuries that so many of us take for granted. But Fernando's consistent testimony is that every single bit of this is worth it. That his, some of his deepest joy and some of the greatest fruit of his in ministry has come as a result of some of his deepest hardship. He is able to look through his suffering and see that it's worth it. Last thing we do is we, we look to Jesus and we see that he is worth it. We look at what he's done and his suffering for us. It is um, that we see that when he has suffered for us, we are able then to be able to suffer for him. And because he suffered for us, we know this. That because of his resurrection, he assures us that suffering is not the end for us. That because of his death and resurrection, he is able to take and redeem 
all of our suffering, that not one second of hardship in your life is ever wasted, that God takes every last bit of it through Jesus and he uses it and redeems it and works it for his kingdom, but also for your good. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We look to Jesus in our suffering and long before we ever get to our suffering. We look to Jesus because we remember one who suffered for us and we are reminded that he is worth it and we are reminded that because of his suffering, our suffering is never wasted. Our suffering can be used by God, not just for his good, but for ours as well. That's what we do in communion each week. We take a time to remind ourselves of a God who came and suffered for us. That's what we're going to do at this time. The band will come up and begin to play for us. And, and as they do that, we'll follow kind of our, our fifth Sunday communion practice. They'll be playing a few songs, and you'll have some time as they play to, to begin whenever you are ready, making your way forward with your family or with your life group or with others. And you can begin to share in this time of communion together as we reflect on Jesus and his suffering, as we allow that to remind us of this truth, that he is worth it. Whatever sacrifice he may call us to, whatever hardship it may be, it may mean for us to be obedient to him, that it is worth it because of what he's done for us.